Okay, hello. Welcome to the first podcast of Mentos and Coke. So, for starters, why have I called the podcast Mentos and Coke, you're wondering? Well, when I was younger, I always had the science question of why is it when you mix Mentos and Coke together, there's a big explosion? And seeing as this is a science podcast, I thought I'm going to answer that at the end of this podcast. So that is what inspired me for the name. Um, But let's get into it, shall we? So, for starters, let's talk about conservation and preservation. Conservation is the maintenance of biodiversity through human action. So that can be maintaining genetic diversity, plant species, animal species, habitats, and this is um, restoring damage or damaged ecosystems that may have been affected by natural or human influence. For example, floods or tsunamis, that conservation would be rebuilding or redeveloping those areas. This involves managing an ecosystem so the natural resources can be used up without running out, and this is known as sustainable development. On the flip side is preservation, and this is the protection of an area by restricting or banning human interference. And the big difference here is humans. In preservation, it is stopping the damage before it's already begun. So if there is a pristine cave that has never been touched, we might ban humans from entering it. Well, on the flip side, conservation may be humans or animals may have damaged the cave and we need to restore it, or conserve it, I should say, to bring it to a better spot. The importance of conservation can be explained in three pillars. The first is economic. Um, This can be profitable means, for example, in the rainforests in the Amazon, certain plants or animals can be turned into drugs or clothes that we can use today in everyday life. Next could be social, so people like health benefits of parks, of beauty, Um, anywhere you go in the UK or around the world, a park will raise the cost of living near you, because people enjoy it. They, They like to go running, they like to go cycling, and later on we'll see how national parks can affect health benefits. And then finally is the ethical existence. There is an argument to be made that all organisms have a right to exist and it is humans moral responsibility to protect and protect conserve and preserve um the right of all species to live so if there is a flood that destroys an ecosystem it is our responsibility to help clean it up and help um bring it back to its original condition So next is sustainability. There is a limited amount of resources in the world, and as the world population grows, it becomes harder for everyone to not deplete them. Um, We've already started to see this in the modern day, with rising population and world hunger on the rise, and we're running out of room and food to um, use. A sustainable resource is a renewable resource, and a renewable resource is something that can be used over and over again. For example, the wind, the sun, solar power, and this is not fossil fuels, which are one-time use that contribute to global warming and rising sea levels. That's what we're trying to avoid here. The aims of sustainability are to preserve the environment, to ensure natural resources are available for future generations, so to stop global warming would be a big one 
to allow humans in all societies to live comfortably. So this is an important one because global warming may affect some people more than others. For example, if you live on the coastline, then in the next 50, 100 years, you are going to have to move because where you live right now will be underwater. Um, it can uh, enable less economically developed countries to develop through exploiting their natural resources. Now, I say exploit, and the first thing you may think is, oh, you don't want to exploit something, but if a low economically developed country needs to kind of have a boost to their economy, they do have to use what they have. So let that be their natural oil resources, diamond countries in Africa, use their wood as seen in Brazil. It's up to them to kind of boost their economy. Alongside sustainable management of resources, existing resources should be used more efficiently. For example, as we're developing our, our current technologies, we are using more sustainable, more efficient uses, for example, in cars. Now, one gallon today can last you so much longer than a gallon 50 years ago, and that's what we need to focus on. Another example is sustain sustainable timber production. Sustainable management of timber is possible by maintaining the forest's biodiversity while still supplying our wood needs. Small-scale timber production, such as coping, is used where the tree trunk is cut close to the ground so new shoots can form, and then over time we loop it so um, we can have a constant supply of wood without permanently damaging the ecosystem. This happens in most woodlands and it happens on a small scale, as I've mentioned. Next is uh, large scale timber production, and this is where we selectively cut the trees. For example, we may only cut the big ones because we need to give the small ones a chance to grow, and we'll be mentioning that in a bit with fishing. Plants for large-scale timber production can also be put an optimal distance apart so we can cut the ones where it will where we can get the wood for ourselves for economic gains but we can also help the environment so they have enough trees so they can still thrive we can also maximize pests to maximize yields for example we could kill any parasites that are living on animals or living on trees and feeding off it. For example, ivy is a big um, pest to control as it takes up the tree's resources, stopping it from growing. Sustainable fishing. So this is kind of what I mentioned earlier. And the way we can manage sustainable fishing is when a fisherman catches a load of fish, he can only take the big ones. So the small ones can have time to regrow and breed so we can have a new generation of fish. And this has been a problem in the past where overfishing caused um, depopulations of important fish um, causing a problem for us humans. And that's where certain treaties had to be put in place so overfishing didn't happen. For example, the fishery policy in the EU. Another way we could do this is using nets with different mesh sizes. So it's the same concept of putting back the small fish but taking the big fish for ourselves because they're already grown. Okay, next is going to be eco-management. Now, eco-management, let's start with Masai Mari. I, I'm probably butchering that name, so if you do know how to say it, I'm sorry. But 
that is how I'm going to be pronouncing it. Uh, this is located in southern Kenya and it's an example of an ecosystem that is actively being balanced. Now, the Wildlife Sanctuary was created in 1961 and it covers 1500 kilometers squared um, and it is situated 1500 to 2000 meters above sea level. The ecosystem is primarily a savava ecosystem, so quite uh, warm quite scarce, quite dense. <laughs> Sorry, quite scarce, not dense. Um, there are fertile regions, but they are closer to the river. There are plains scattered with scrubs and trees around. Um, farmers... Sorry, it's famous for its zebra, wildebeest, and migrations, and it is home to a wide range of large mammals, for example, buffaloes, elephants, or the almost distinct black rhino, which we will get onto in a bit. The Arcadia bush was a problem in the past, as it was home to the Aseti fly, which I think I'm also saying wrong. Um, and this was a carrier of African typhosimus, and this caused deaths, illness in both people and animals. However, in the past, government workers and the indigenous tribes have worked together to remove them. And this has also been helped by local animals, such as elephants, trampling them. Farming in the Maasai Mari region can be split into two sections, grazing and cultivation. So grazing has been used for um, the care of livestock for years. In the past, the Maasai practiced traditional method of farming known as semi-nomadic farming. And this is where the tribes frequently moved depending on the climate. So this allowed for them to have the best yield. Grazing is now in the current day limited to certain areas of the park, for example, the edges of the reserve, and this is to prevent any uh, large herds grazing in the middle to, for stopping cultivation. So cultivation is the region around the Maasai Marie era, which has got bigger recently, and this is as modern technology is converting crop is converting grassland to cropland and natural vegetation is removed. Ecotourism. The Maasai Mari religion relies on tourism for its economic input. Thousands of people travel there each year to see their rhinoceroses, their tribes, its rich culture, and this really boosts its economy. But the key principles to ecotourism is to ensure that the this form of tourism doesn't exploit the natural environment or local communities. This it helps to engage with communities on planned developments, so any wells that need to be built, any shelters that need to be built, and it also helps benefit the local people as well as the visitors. Visitors, But on the flip side, there can be a bad side. For example, for the people to actually get around the park, um, they use mechanical machines which can cause noise, which can stop migrating animals, it can cause um, contamination of the soil or walking trails that can displace animals. Sorry. Conservation and research. So the nature reserve plays an important part in research of endangered species and this is because most popular large mammals have experienced population declines in recent years and this can be studied in many different ways. So 
Black rhinos, as we mentioned earlier, are the most endangered animals in Africa. Despite the trade of them being illegal, the horn of the rhino is very sought after. This is because in Southeast Asian uh, culture, it is seen as a medicinal way to heal yourself. However, there is little claims to back this up, and hunting of elephant tusk and rhino horn have driven many populations extinct. The way we can counteract this, however, is in recent years we've been removing the horns of rhinos, so they're safe, but they don't have their horns, and this can stop hunters from killing them, because they want the horn, nothing else. We can also spray paint it with a special red colouring that makes the horn useless to a hunter's use, but still makes it useful to the rhino for uh, self-defence purposes. Um, in 1972 there were over a hundred rhinos that lived in Masai Mara, but in 1982 it became illegal to poach them, and that meant only a handful remained. An active conservation by the protection program was established to encourage a balance between the needs of the local communities and those in the wildlife. The program included an employment of reserve rangers and their provision of community equipment, vehicles and other necessary infrastructure. This helped to deter poachers in serving and conserving the rhino population, and by the mid-1990s the rhino numbers had increased significantly. However, due to their long breeding times, it will still take a while for them to get back to their pre-poaching levels. Um, the Masai Marayan region is also good for research, as it's a good study area. So the Michigan University has shown interest in the behaviour of hyenas. Um, the Marai Predator Project catalyzes and monitors lion populations through the region. Sablaski and Dutton completed a flow assessment of the river Bassan nearby, as well as the Marai Maru Cheetah Project, which monitors the cheetah population, which is a nice little thing. And with anything, a balance needs to be put between the ecosystem, the animals, and humans. Elephants, in particular, threaten cultivation, as large elephants often trample crop, leading to damage in homesteads, as well as other grazing animals may also want to eat the crops. To prevent this, lands get fenced, but in fencing, it can also stop natural migrations, so everything has an upside and a downside. Legal hunting is also used to cull excess animals, so when there are too many of one type of animal that obviously isn't extinct, hunters are allowed to kill them. Human population also requires more land for crop use for homes, and evidence suggests when humans increase, wildlife density decreases, and that cannot just be a random <laughs> statistic, that is a fact. So next is the ecosystem management in the Terai region of Nepal. So fertile land here is used for agriculture. There is a high population density as well as natural resources. However, the natural resources are at risk. The forest area in Nepal is the lifeblood of many communities and many people. The ecosystem is extremely diverse with large tigers such as the Bengal tiger, the sloth bear, and the Indian rhinoceros. Now, as I said, millions of people depend on the forests for their livelihood, which can be an important source of 
income, life, culture, they depend on this forest. However, the removal of large parts of the forest in recent years has led to flooding, which has caused severe disruption in local communities. To counteract this, we need sustainable management of forests in Nepal. Forest management is needed. Sorry, if you can hear running in the background, that's my cat who is going a bit crazy right now. Um, the sustainable forest management in Nepal. So, the aim of this is to both exploit the land for its economic benefits, as it has been doing for years, but also at the same time conserve and preserve a majority of the land so that it can still be used for future generations. So, small forestry biz businesses such as the Forestry Steward Council have international standard which helps protect the forests. So, for starters, there has been significant improvement in the conservation of forestry regions in both terms of increased area and improved density. There's been improved soil and water management across the region and an increase in the retail price of forestry products so there is a greater economic input in the region. Sustainable wood fuel sources which contribute three quarters of the local household and energy needs and securing biodiversity in the forest areas and all of this stuff is kind of what the council helps to achieve to help the economic and political situation of the Nepal forests to thrive in the Terai region. So next is promoting sustainable agriculture. Um, the Tizai region um, has a wide range of agriculture. For example, up in the hills there are a large diversity of fruits and vegetables, and them being grown can also deter deforesters, as you don't want to deforest an orchard, because that's not what you're there for. Um, this can be also improving irrigation facilities to increase, improve heart, improve cr crop yield. Um, the growth of nitrogen-fixing crops such as pulses and legumes to enhance the fertility of the soil, and improving fertilization techniques to enhance crop yields. For example, using manure to improve nutrient content of the soil. Next is the eco-management of peat bogs. And I'm just going to get a sip of water. I don't know if you have made it this far, but if you have, well done. This is my very first time doing a podcast, so forgive me if I'm not doing great. Um, so, the ecosystem management of peat bogs. So, the peat bog is a region of wet, spongy ground that contains decomposing vegetation. An undisturbed area of peatland is called a carbon sink, and this is because there is a large build-up of carbon dioxide. However, once dried, this peat can be used as a fuel, as it's good for releasing thermal energy. The ecosystem is, uh, is made up when plant material is inhibited from fully decaying by acidic and anaerobic conditions, and this normally occurs in the wet or boggy areas, therefore a peat bog. So, there are plants that have been especially adapted to grow in boglands, for example, certain mosses, certain heathers, bog cotton, which thrives off the low nutrients and high moistness of the soil. Now, peat bogs are at a large risk, as 
they are rare in the UK currently and they are threatened. 10% of the UK is classified as bogs and however 10 sorry however 90% of that 10% is classified as poor condition and this is bad because peat bogs are essential for maintaining wildlife as there is little human intervention so wildlife such as birds insects can thrive in here to ensure that we can conserve lowland bogs we could plant less trees because asymmetric tree planting um, takes up the nutrients and the water in the soil and it covers too much land. We could also use controlled grazing to maintain the biodiversity of the peatland to ensure a device wetland. Environmentally sensitive ecosystems. Although all ecosystems are to an extent fragile as humans can easily destroy one, which is not a good thing, um, some are more sensitive than others. For example, as we're going to be going over, um, these ecosystems can be affected by tourists visiting the area, movement of livestock, poaching, native plants or foreign plants, um, or hunters and seasonal bands. So first we're going to have a look at the Galapagos Islands. The Galapagos Islands are the ones that Darwin discovered on his turtle adventures, as I will be calling them. Um, and these are quite a unique set of islands because the islands, there is evidence that they've never been connected to the mainland. And this is how some incredible economic, sorry, um, some unique genetic diversity has been created. Because the mainland has never been touching these islands, it's given a chance for unique opportunities to develop in this system. For example, some very unique animals that we can see are the Galapagos giant tortoise, which is the one Darwin had. And these can grow to over 150 centimetres in length, which is massive. And also I'm pretty sure they can grow, they can live for hundreds of years. And the next is the flightless cormorant. And these are birds with reduced wings so that they can hunt better underneath the water. So, and then finally is the marine iguana, which contains an advantageous mutation over a land iguana with the ability to swim effectively. So you can kind of notice a theme here. And next is the plants present. And there are kind of three zones. There's the coastal zone, the arid zone, and the humid zone. And each zone, it has its own tolerant species. For example, in the coastal region, it has salt-tolerant species because it's near the sea. And this can include saltbush or mangrove. In the arid region, there are drought-tolerant species such as cacti or carob tree. And in the humid zone, there are dense cloud forests. And these trees support populations of mosses and liverworts. These all kind of sound a bit like Harry Potter um, ingredients, if you ask me. So, next is the control of human activities. So, before the 19th century, the land was hardly visited by humans, but obviously with the discovery of the island, as well as whale poaching, the island kind of got a bit destroyed by whale poachers, as they hunted the tortoises almost to extinction, because, because they last such a long while, they're good for sea voyages. To... 
control measures against uh, poaching and hunting on the island. They've introduced park rangers across the islands. They've limited human access to the islands. And they have created strict control over movement and introduced animals such as pigs. And the reason they've done pigs is because they were mentioned in Darwin's original journals. So they are important for conservation measures. So the next sensitive region is Antarctica. So Antarctica is the coldest, highest, driest, windiest and empty emptiest continent. And this is because humans cannot survive on Antarctica, that's a fact. It is too cold. Only 2% of the land is growable for plants and even then that is not enough for humans to survive, let alone thrive in this environment. Now, the entire continent is covered by a ice sheet which is 2 kilometers thick. The ice sheet contains around 70% of the world's fresh water, so it has been a controversial topic in recent years with the whole uh, water issue kind of sparking up, but that's not what we're here to talk about. Um, the average temperature in Antarctica is just below minus 30 degrees. Unlike most parts of Earth, Antarctica only has two seasons, winter and summer. So in the winter, it is usually 24 hours of dark, and in the summer, it's 24 hours of light. So it's quite an extreme precedent, Antarctica. So seeing as it is so extreme, only certain animals can survive. So all the endothermic animals living on Antarctica rely on a thick layer of blubber to insulate them from the cold. This includes whales, seals, penguins, and now out of all of these there is only one type of penguin, the emperor penguin, that is the only warm-blooded animal that remains on the Antarctic continent during the winter. And this is due to their perseverance to look after their eggs and their young, and also their thick layer of blubber that keeps them surviving. And as I mentioned earlier, for the plant life, there is only 2% that can grow, and that is only lichens and moss, and that is not enough for humans to live on, let alone thrive. And because it is such a controversial region, as I have mentioned, the control of human activities has been wide. So, damage to the Antarctic can lead to planet-wide impacts, such as global warming and ozone depletion. Hunting of whales and seals has led to the depletion in stocks of these organisms. There has been soil contamination around scientific research stations and discharging of waste into the sea, which we've recently seen in the Russian oil spill around the Arctic, which is a tragedy. So, in 1961, the Arctic Treaty was established, and this was to protect the unique nature of Antarctica. And this was done by a scientific cooperation between nations, which, let's be honest, no. <laughs> um, protection of the Antarctic environment and the conservation of plants and animals. Um, there's also managing tourism and uh, there is a complete ban on the military. So no testing, no presence, no personnel. Next area we're going to be talking about is the Snowdonia National Park in Wales. So... The Studania National Park is 2,000 square kilometres in the countryside of northwest Wales. It contains the highest mountain range in England and Wales, with four peaks over 1,000 uh, metres. It has an extremely rich and diverse habitat and ecosystem, with coastal birds, mountain birds and forest birds, as well as over 40 species of land mammal present. 
in Slovenia, including badgels, voles, deer, and hedgehogs. The plant presence is also extremely diverse, so at the top of the mountains you can find some arctic alpine plants which can cope with extreme conditions, while lower down in the slopes you can see some more common plants such as oak or alder, elm. Now the control of human activity, so the park was created in 1951 and there are 25,000 people living in it many of which actually work in the plant and help to conserve and preserve it and the key purpose of this is to enhance and conserve the natural beauty of the wildlife and cultural heritage and then and the beauty is such an important factor as this is what i was mentioning earlier because the park is so nice it encourages humans to exercise there on bikes running walking um and it kind of not bans cars or motor transport, but more discourages it. So there is also a power station to help obviously power the houses, and this is done with hydroelectricity, so clean electricity with sustainable resources, and this is set up in the mountains. So not only is it hidden, but it is using the natural mountains around you to create a good environment. The final one is the Lake District in England. So the Lake District is home to the largest mountain and the deepest lake in England. There are 16 lakes, actually, and there is evidence that one of them has survived since the last ice age. Um, there are a wide variety of animals present, including endangered species of fish, so it, they are under high protection. Um, there are also a lot of plants which are helps for the extreme diverse environment, including carniv carnivorous plants, which are rare to find in the UK. Um, and the control of human activity is similar to the Wales National Park, as it is a similar environment. And that is everything for the podcast. This was my first podcast. I don't know who'll be watching, but thank you. Sorry, I was a bit. Uh, at some bits it was my very very first one so forgive me there um and staying true to my nature why does mentos and coke explode well um coke is a carbonated drink and the mento mince causes the beverage to catalyze the gas and this causes an eruption which um pushes the liquid up and out the bottle so in short the Mentos catalyzed the gas, creating an explosion. And yeah, so that's it all for this podcast. Thank you very much for listening. If you actually made it this far, let me know. Um, yeah, thank you.